Yeah, that is a difficult passage to preach from. It's a difficult passage to read. Some of God's word <clears throat> is there to, to really give us comfort, and it obviously does give us comfort at face value. And yet there are other parts where the comfort takes a little bit of digging to find because the passages are difficult. But nevertheless, there is comfort in there as well. Have you ever gone up to someone's house and just as you were going through the gate, you've just gone through the gate, you maybe closed it behind you, and then you hear the running of a dog and it's snarls and it's barking at you and you're so frightened you just freeze, you can't move. And as the dog is just about to come towards you, it gets pulled back and you realise that it's on a leash and the leash is holding it back. It actually can't get to you. It reaches the end of its rope. It's tied up. It barks madly, but it can't reach you. You feel safe, but you look forward to when the dog won't be there at all and there won't be any barking any longer. Sometimes life is like that, where we feel as though the devil, demons, circumstances are all really attacking us. But at times, we can also sense God's protection and his presence. These things are not able to touch us. In a real sense, Satan is like a dog on a leash. His bark is real and so is his bite. But he's restrained and we are protected. And that's what we read of in Revelation chapter 9. There are those who are not protected. Those who don't have the seal of God on them. Who are not covered by the blood of Christ. They are not outside of Satan's reach. They're within it. And they're attacked. That's part of what we see in the In the fifth trumpet. In Revelation 9 we see that God has Satan and his demons on a leash. When we see the things of the world we think how terrible, how can God allow this to happen? Why doesn't he stop it? Why doesn't he restrain it? And yet we don't realise he already is restraining it. He's already holding it back. And he's already protecting, protecting us. Especially if we have turned to the Lord The theme today is, as we go through the whole of Revelation under the, the title, We Shall Overcome, because Christ has overcome and we are in Christ. The theme today is that we should listen to God's warning sirens. God is speaking to the world and his sirens are going off, his warnings are being heard. God shouts to us in our pain. God has heard the prayers of his people. How long, O Lord, how long? The prayers which rise to him with incense. And then he responds by sending an angel <clears throat> with fire which is thrown into the earth, as we read in chapter 8. 
And this fire is described in more detail as the seven trumpets of destruction are, are sent forth. The first four were devastation on the environment, fire burning up trees and grass, the sea being polluted, rivers becoming poisonous, the sun and moon being darkened. These were the first four trumpets in Revelation chapter 8. But now, <clears throat> well, if you were to to read Revelation chapter 8, you could conclude that even global warming, forest fires, the lack of rain, natural disasters, these things that we see so regularly on the news, that they're not just the effect of man-made global warming. The sun isn't overheating. It's the, these are man-made things. But yet, it's not just man-made things. A lot of it. These are things that are being sent by God as well. We have sinned, we have exploited the, the planet, and, and God is using that to teach us a lesson, to warn us, to get, us our, to get our attention to turn back to him, to turn to him for salvation, for rescue. He calls us to turn to him through faith in Christ, so that we will be freed from this decaying world, this suffering world, to receive eternal blessings, eternal life, to know the hope of a new world where there will be no more suffering or pain or sorrow any longer. Again, the Old Testament is the backdrop, the way to interpret the visions in Revelation. If we understand the Old Testament, we will be able to see the parallels in Revelation. We see that the plagues in Egypt in the book of Exodus are paralleled here in the, the trumpets and, that are sent out onto the earth. The first four trumpets pour out destruction on the earth, but people still keep their backs turned towards God. In Exodus... Pharaoh, the king in Egypt, experienced several plagues too, but instead of each one of them causing him to turn to God, to repent, his heart was hardened. He was even more obstinate towards God. And so too we see the same picture here where people don't hear God's call even though they suffer, even though he's speaking to them through their suffering. God patiently calls us to come to him. And again, it's worth quoting again, C.S. Lewis. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. And God is shouting to a world to turn back to him. These things that we suffer are God's warnings, God's sirens, We see the seven trumpets as his warnings. Later on, we see the seven bowls, which are not his warnings, but are actually his judgment. As we read on to see what the remaining three trumpets will be, John sees a new vision. Then I looked, in the last chapter of chapter, the last verse of chapter eight. Then I looked. He said, that's the way John introduces it, seeing something new. 
The first four angels showed one vision, and before the last three trumpets sound, he hears a flying eagle call out, Woe, 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 or terror, terror, terror. A flying eagle in the mid-heavens, or directly overhead, is associated with coming destruction in the Old Testament. It's not associated with an airplane with, with bombs or whatever. We tend to to interpret so much of Revelation in terms of military, war, and so on. That's not how we ought to interpret it. We should primarily see it through the symbolism of the Old Testament. And Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. In the fifth and sixth trumpets here in Revelation chapter 9, we see two of the three woes or terrors described. These trumpets of God are his wrath on the unbelieving world as both judgment for his rejection of him as well as his call for them to turn back to him. And here in the fifth and sixth trumpets, we're we're told explicitly that the fifth one was sent only to harm unbelievers, to warn them, to those who don't have the seal of God, in verse 4. And there's a good argument for saying that that the sixth trumpet follows that pattern as well. The first terror, the first woe, demons attack unbelievers. In this fifth trumpet, we see a star that has fallen from heaven to earth and was given the key to the bottomless pit. A star falling from heaven to earth is often represented in in Scripture as Satan and his fallen angels. In Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, the angel who sought to worship for himself, the angel in heaven before God who decided he wanted to be God, He wanted to worship. He was cast down to earth. Jesus says in Luke 18, Luke 10, 18, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And John's readers would naturally associate this as figurative language to describe Satan and also his fallen angels, all those who have rebelled against God in heaven and who were cast down to the earth. And in verse 11, we're told specifically that the one who rules over the plague of locusts is an angel. Their king is the angel from the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, the destroyer. Satan, the devil, is described as the destroyer. Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Suffering, death, was introduced by Satan into the world. And he is the one who is stirring these things, but he's on a leash. He only wants to kill, to destroy the destroyer that's his name and that's his character where Jesus has come 
that we may have life and have it to the full. But notice that even though Satan is active and doing his worst, God is still in control. God is still almighty, all-powerful. It was he who allowed the shaft of the bottomless pit to be opened. He cast Satan and the demons down. He gave the key to the bottomless pit to Satan and the demons for a while. God is still in control. Have you ever heard the song The Devil Went Down to Georgia by Charlie Daniels and his band? The idea is that uh, <clears throat> it, it ties into the, the, the prevailing idea that a lot of people have that there's this fight between good and evil. There's this battle between good and evil in the world. And sometimes evil seems to be winning and people wonder, will it overcome in the end? And the devil spars on his violin with another person and in the end the devil loses that battle in the song. But the song reflects the idea that that people are, they don't know what the outcome is going to be. But we know that the outcome is that Christ overcomes. He has gained the victory. God is in control. The devil is on a leash. Spiritual warfare is not a, a struggle between two equals where the outcome is undetermined. Spiritual warfare is where the victor, Christ, has won the battle. He's won the war and he's putting all his enemies under his feet. And the, the warfare that we see is Christ cleaning up the battlefield. The outcome is not in question. One day the dog that's on a leash will be taken back and put down. The key to the bottomless pit might well be understood as an analogy that the devil has brought sin into the world. And the bottomless pit of hell is a destiny for all who remain sinners when they die. All who don't turn to Jesus. But God is still in control. When Satan opened the bottomless pit, the abyss, smoke poured out and the sun was darkened. And in the Bible, smoke and darkness signify judgment. God's judgment is on the devil and his demons. We're told later on that the lake of fire was actually created for them, not for sinners. That's the original reason it was made. God's judgment on them. But then after the the bottomless pit was opened and smoke came out, a plague of locusts came out of the smoke and descended on the earth. Again, this is figurative language. This isn't real locusts. The description of them is not the little green insects. The description of them is supernatural. Although it has echoes of the plague of locusts in Egypt, these are different. They had, they looked like horses prepared for battle. They had what looked like crowns on their head, human-like faces, long hairs, massive teeth. They wore armor of iron, tails that stung like scorpions, five mouths each, and so on. 
These are demons. That's the best way to understand this. And they tormented people for five months, verse 10 tells us. Although they were not allowed to kill anyone. They were told not to harm the grass or plants or trees, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were told not to kill them, but to torture them for five months with pain like the pain of a scorpion sting. In those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. We can notice three things here. Firstly, God's people are protected. Secondly, they did not kill people. They only caused pain. And thirdly, people were sick to death of these attacks. The scorpion sting that these locusts have, that reminds us of the symbolism that Paul uses regarding death in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is a sting that results in death, and law gives sin its power. But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin is a sting that results in death. There's the imagery of a sting from a scorpion here in in 1 Corinthians 15. But if you're a believer, you're protected from that. You're protected by the blood of Jesus. He has overcome. He has victory over sin and death. If you're Christ's, according to Revelation 9, on this fifth trumpet, you're protected. This plague of locusts will not harm us. The second terror is something that I don't normally preach about. Fire and brimstone. Literally, that's what's spoken of in some translations in Revelation chapter 9. We read, And in my vision I saw the horses and the riders sitting on them. The riders wore armor that was fiery red and dark blue and yellow. The horses had heads like lions, and fire and smoke and burning sulfur billowed from their mouths. But if we read some more, some older translations, like even the the New American Standard Bible, In 1995, it reads, And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates of the color of fire and of hyacinth hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. And in the next verse, he says, A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. The imagery is, of course, Old Testament, where God eventually could not let injustice and sin, rampant sin, go undealt with. His patience is vast, but it is not endless. 
God gives us time to turn back to him, but at a certain point he says, enough. Judgment even here and now on certain sins. And that's what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. This is the language of judgment here in Revelation chapter 9. We understand that from Genesis chapter 19. The sixth angel blows a trumpet and four angels are then released to kill a third of mankind. The angels were released from the Euphrates River, the place where the enemies of the Israelites would gather to attack them from. So this sixth trumpet and the four angels being unleashed seems to refer to not so much a particular place on earth, where a cataclysmic war will will happen. But simply it means that destruction is unleashed. Attack begins. And the fact that we're told of the four angels, the word for the number four in Revelation, and throughout the Bible very often, symbolizes the whole earth, the whole world, the four corners of the earth, the four winds, as they're described. This isn't an, an attack that happens at one particular place somewhere in the world. This is war which happens all over the world. And as we've often seen in Revelation, these things are not simply foretelling of the future, but so often they're actually describing what has been happening already, what is happening now and what will happen Many people have been killed. These four angels symbolize war on earth down through the centuries. The New Living Translation says that there were 200 million mounted troops. But more literal translations say that there was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Or even more literally, myriads times myriads. And that is symbolic language. That is a way of saying nearly a countless number of troops. This is not an army on earth. One military expert, William Harrison, he has calculated that it would be impossible to get 200 million troops in one place at one time and to get them enough food, enough fuel, all the things that they would need. Our roads are not big enough anywhere in the world to provide all the resources that 200 million troops would need to keep them alive. Even during World War II, he calculated that all of the Allied forces together, as well as Russia and all the Axis forces, they were only 70 million, and they were spread all over the world, and the logistical problem of Supplying them was enormous at times. There's no way they could be supplied if they were all together in one place. This is practically impossible. It's much more appropriate here in the light of the previous passage and in the light of Revelation being highly symbolic to see these trips as being demons who cause war on earth, bringing death to countless millions of people. A third of mankind being killed 
shouldn't be taken as a precise numerical percentage, 33.3333 recurring percent. It's, it's a figurative way of saying a lot of people, but only a minority of people. War has ravaged human history, but still continues to do so. Joel Beakey summarises, think about the millions of people who have been killed in wars. Even somebody calculated, he quotes, according to some estimates between 1480 and 1941, that's not to say the second half even of the 20th century, Britain engaged in 78 wars, France in 71 wars, Spain in 64 wars, Russia in 61 wars, Austria in 52 wars, Germany in 23 wars, the United States in 13, China in 11, Japan in 9, and so on. And the war drums keep sounding. And that's not even taken into consideration, that's international war, that's not even taken into consideration genocide. Like the the millions who were killed in Cambodia. That's not taking into consideration homicide that isn't classed as war. And that's not taking into consideration hostility that doesn't lead to death between individuals, between communities, between nations. And all the things that are deathly from People trafficking, child abuse, domestic abuse, exploitation, and so much more. The devil and his demons are doing their worst. And if it were not for God's restraining hands, they would be doing far more. Because that is their nature to destroy. At the same time, it's not just the demons that are doing this to us. People's arms aren't twisted up their backs to go to war, to have arguments with their neighbours, to to be angry to the point of, of killing. Even if the, demon, the devil had started all of this, there's enough sin in our hearts to keep it going, to keep it simmering, to keep it boiling over. The human heart goes willingly along the sinful heart goes willingly along with these things, such as a depravity of sin in our lives. And yet, God provides his justice into this situation. Revelation 9 teaches us that God's wrath is not to be taken lightly. God is angry at sin. We often see his patience and we think, he shouldn't be angry. He should just continue to be patient. And then patient and more patient. He is patient, waiting for people to turn back to him. He's postponing judgment. But yet he is angry as well. <coughs> and we get angry too when we see sin. We get upset when we see evil prosper. But yet, as Psalm 37 tells us, don't worry, don't fret about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. For like grass they soon fade away, 
Like spring flowers, they soon wither. Trust in the Lord and do good. Then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desire. Later on in the same psalm we read, Day by day the Lord takes care of the innocent and they will receive an inheritance that lasts forever. They will not be disgraced in hard times. Even in famine they will have more than enough. But the wicked will die. The Lord's enemies are like flowers in a field. They will disappear like smoke. Put your hope in the Lord. Travel steadily along his path. He will honour you by giving you the land. You will see the wicked destroyed. Those who are evil will one day be punished. And we should leave it to God in his time. Not taking vengeance now. Leave it to the Lord. That's his prerogative. We should live peaceful lives. Trust in him. But how do we feel about the about the Lord punishing those who are evil? How do we feel about the words of Psalm 139? Oh God, if only you would destroy the wicked. Get out of my life, you murderers. They blaspheme you. Your enemies misuse your name. Oh Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with a total hatred. For your enemies are my enemies. There is a sense in which it is okay for us. In fact, it's it's sometimes the, the right thing for us to do, to have a righteous anger. So often our anger becomes unrighteous, but so often there are things that happen that should stir up in us a sense of outrage. When children are bullied at school to the point of wanting to end their lives, if people are trolled on social media, if people are hurt and attacked by others, especially if it's our close family members or close friends, we feel an inbuilt sense of righteous anger that those who do such terrible things ought to be punished. If we can have a righteous anger against people who are abusers, all kinds of sins, then how much more should we have a righteous anger against those who oppose God? those who refuse to worship him, those who refuse to honour him. If they are enemies of God, then they are enemies of us as well. So many people are refusing to worship him, refusing to, to serve him, refusing to glorify him. Day after day, just shaking their fists at him in anger and rebellion and hatred and how much more is God justified in being angry against his enemies? We thank God that he doesn't display his anger quickly. He is slow to get angry and he's quick to be merciful. And yet people abuse God's patience with them. And they just continue on. Bill, the commentator on Revelation, he summarizes 
The theological purpose of the warning is that God, by providing sufficient opportunities for spiritual reform, should demonstrate his sovereignty and especially his justice in finally judging the entire host of unsealed people at the seventh trumpet. But he also says the pastoral purpose is to remind readers that antagonism to their faithful witness will continue to the end of history and that they should not be disheartened because that is part of God's plan in which they can trust. So we've seen that God gives warning to people and he provides justice. He gives tastes of justice here and now, foretastes of what is to come. But also we see that God is merciful. While he is justified in pouring out his wrath on all those who refuse to worship and live by his standards, he calls them still to turn to him. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. That is a theme running throughout the Bible. That if we resist God, we will face eternal condemnation. But if we turn to him, we will be forgiven. Our sins will be white as snow. That's what the cross is about. That's what the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was about. That's why the world is still existing. Because God is patient with us, wanting people to turn back to him. At the end of the chapter, Revelation 9, we read, But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood. Idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or their thefts. We shouldn't see this as as a way of saying that, that people cannot turn to the Lord. This is looking at the outcome. This is describing those who don't turn to the Lord. Whereas previously we've been we've seen the protection of those who have, who have the seal of the Lord on them. How do people get the seal of the Lord on them? How are there those who are protected? It's because those who are under God's wrath turn to him and trust in Jesus and are no longer under his wrath anymore and are protected by the blood of Christ. So even now to everyone who is out there who is a rebel, who is an enemy of God, there is the call to turn to him, to place their faith in him. This outcome doesn't have to be theirs cross can be theirs if they turn to him yet instead so many people continue to worship demons and idols idols are not just statues of little gods of other faiths that people pray to or in front of or idols are anything that takes our worship our attention our ultimate source of fulfillment or joy 
idols can be things that are not inherently bad. God gives us homes. He allows us to have cars. These are gifts from God at times. But if we idolize them, then they take the place of God in our lives. We worship them. People worship their bodies. People worship their technology, their phones, their relationships, their careers. So many different things become idols. And worshipping demons here is not necessarily a description of devil worship. Some very nice people are worshipping demons in a metaphorical sense. It's more likely a reference to worldly ways of living, worldly ways of thinking. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Unbiblical ideas about God, unbiblical ideas about religion, about life, about sexuality, about psychology, about work, about so many different things, these are not from God. These are from the devil and his demons, strongholds of evil that have demonic influence and power behind them. And people are being deceived, believing the lie, just like at the very start, they believed the lie and they were misled and they suffered. And the demons are doing the same thing again and people are believing the lie and suffering. And yet, no matter how much they suffer, they they sometimes still don't turn to him. They experience the horrors of war. They suffer death, injury, illness. But instead of blaming sin, instead of blaming themselves, instead of blaming the devil, they shake their fist at God. They remain defiant. They don't humble themselves and admit they need help. And the cycle of sin and sorrow continues. God's warning sirens should lead them to repentance, should lead them to salvation. God's judgment on sin is partial now, but it's only a taster of the full punishment that is to come. During World War II, when the the bombers were coming overhead, the air raid sirens would go off. They would warn people to go to safety, to get into the shelters. And so too in many Pacific countries around the world, around the Pacific where tsunamis are a real danger, there are early warning signs, tsunami warning signs that give people enough time to get to higher ground or higher up in the buildings to a place of shelter, a place of safety. And so often these trumpets in Revelation are God's warnings. He wants people to turn to him for shelter, to find forgiveness, to find a hope and a future in Christ. And the Lord is compassionate, not wanting anyone to perish. 
Peter says, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's been patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of, the, of God and hurrying it along. On that day he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. God sends his warning sirens to us. Listen to them. Turn to him. If you have already, praise God. Thank him for all that he has done for us, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness, and all that is ahead by his grace. If you haven't, well, you can turn to him now just through a simple prayer prayer which you can pray if you want to pray a prayer of turning to him now just, just follow the words and make them your own Lord God I'm so sorry for not having lived as I ought to before you I'm sorry for my sins and I come to you now bringing nothing in my hands all my good works are not good enough but I accept your forgiveness your mercy, your grace because of your love for me and because Jesus has already suffered and died on the cross so that my sins have already dealt with. I thank you, Father, that he has set me free, that he gives me new life, the gift of eternal life, salvation, simply through calling on you for mercy. God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. In Jesus' name, amen.